Hi, um, welcome to the Sustainable Futures Careers Conversations podcast. Uh, I'm here today with Manish Data. Uh, we'll be talking about his career in sustainability uh, and looking into various interesting things about uh, sustainability as a future career as well. So, Manish, thank you very much for joining us. Do you want to just introduce yourself? Great. Thanks, Paul. And uh, great to be here. Uh, I, feel it, I feel very honoured to be uh, given this opportunity by you. Um, so my sustainability career started probably around 2007, and two things happened to me at that point in my life. I learned I was going to become a father, which completely changed, I suppose, the way I thought about time, and I started thinking about life after me and legacy and things like that. Up till there, I was quite carefree about those things. And at the same time, uh, when I, I was at Marks & Spencer at the time, I was sort of halfway through my career at Marks & Spencer. Um, Marks & Spencer, led by its very, very passionate CEO, Stuart Rose, yeah. uh, conceived Plan A, uh, our sustainability program, which back in 2007 was kind of fairly pioneering. It, it didn't feel it at that moment because it felt like, you know, there was a lot to do. But actually now reflecting back on it, um, it was very pioneering. And so um, having a slightly different perspective on the kind of legacy I wanted to leave primarily for my son, and then Marks and Spencer looking for internal change agents who had good experience in the business, but not necessarily sustainability experts. I was the first to put my hand up when Stuart and you know other leaders in the business said, we need resources to dedicate themselves to plan A. So what were you doing before that? What was the sort of early career? So I joined as a graduate. Uh, my uh, academic background is in marketing and model languages and international business. So I did an undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in that field. So nothing to do with sustainability. Um, and then I joined uh, Marks & Spencer as a commercial manager graduate trainee. And I worked in shops, which is really essential. And I led, uh, I put slippers on lady, um, I put, I remember T81, which was the, I think still is the code name for ladies slippers. <laughs> My first job straight as a postgraduate from uni was managing a couple of counters for ladies slippers. But that, you know, that was such essential learning in terms of managing people, in terms of uh, interacting with public, in terms of managing time. So I did that for a couple of years and then came into a more strategic marketing role in the head office in Baker Street at the time and I did that for about uh, seven eight years and then came into the property group okay. where I um, delivered large uh, refurbishments and new build projects for Marks and Spencer and it was through that work and understanding the impacts of particularly buildings on the property sector and the arrival of Plan A as a yeah. new priority for the business that I fell into the job uh, as program manager of Plan A uh, for the property team Fantastic. initially. And you were doing that role for 10, 11 years? Yeah, like so I, 2007 to 2018 was yeah. the time that I worked on Plan A. Yeah. And it was, you know, um, a really special time. So special. all my training, all my education didn't come through going to university because I, I learned other things at university, but it came through learning through experience at Marks & Spencer. Yeah. And, for which I'm very grateful. And, and the lesson there is, is about the passion of the senior leadership team, isn't it? To drive that forward and to put it front and centre. And, and, and they were very much one of the first organisations to say, OK, we want to be seen as a sustain, led by sustainability issues. And, and that uh, maybe is, is something that people are starting to, to pick up on a bit more now, would you say? Yeah, I, I mean, at the time it, was, it came left field, right? Because uh, this, I think, with the exception of perhaps interface flooring, Patagonia even the likes of Unilever and others that are considered as leaders now, IKEA, considered as leaders now, 
were not really in this space. So it was like yeah. quite unusual. And, and it was a very interesting context at Marks and Spencer. I don't know if, for those that may remember, around that time, there was a bit of a hostile takeover bid yes. from Philip Green. Um, so Stuart and his senior team were busy in that. But as they came out of that and, and sort of protected the business's independence, Stuart uh, watched An Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore. And that really gripped him uh, and became, you know, his kind of the thing that he wanted to add to the DNA of Marks and Spencer. Um, and so, yes, yeah, strong leadership and then kind of uh, embedding that leadership, starting with the senior team, but then into each business function, aligning it to performance management so that it's not just the right thing to do from a heart point of view but it also appeals to people's head and their wallets as well, yes. which is important in a retail context, important in business now even, was, was something that we got really right at that point, uh, which meant very quickly we could mobilise through his strong leadership and a, a, a whole load of uh, champions and sort of evangelists for Plan A right through the business. And when I left uh, m in 2018, yeah, Plan A was no longer some sort of programme or some sort of thing that was happening uh, on the side, it became a verb at Marks and Spencer. And that's when you know when you've achieved change management, when you've succeeded, yeah. is when people tap you on the shoulder and say, if you're printing too much, that's not a very plan A thing to do. Or if you're getting the um, getting the, the lift instead of stairs, they'll say, well, I'm going to do the plan A thing and I'm going to get the stairs. And that was really, really very special. And, and you've taken that on subsequently into to more recent roles as well. Just talk a little bit about yeah, what so you've done I, since then. 21 years is a long time in a business and it was very special, but there came a point where I wanted new experiences. Um, and thanks to Plan A, I'd started working with two organisations in particular who um, I, I've grown to love uh, a great deal. One was the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, who used um, Plan A as an example. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'm a fellow there now, and we use those sort of corporate examples to blend with ac latest academic thinking to really try and motivate leaders of large businesses to put sustainability at the heart of their purpose, at the heart of their strategy, and, and to deliver against it. So Marks & Spencer was a good case study. In fact, even today, I often talk about Marks & Spencer to clients of CISL. And the other one was UK Green Building Council. And I suppose those gave me an insight into... Um, the importance of collaboration, the importance of partnerships, the importance of working, you know, the commercial sector working with the third sector. So for a period of time after leaving Marks & Spencer uh, and motivated by wanting to have a greater impact, I worked at the UK Green Building Council as director there. So I did that for three and a half years, but I was missing the corporate world. Right. Uh, and the other thing I decided when I came away from Marks & Spencer is that I, in order for me to create the kind of impact I personally wanted, I needed to do more than one thing. Um, I needed to split my time. So, so I split that by having an amazing job as Global Director of Sustainability at Specsavers. Yeah. I'm a fellow at both Institute for Sustainability Leadership and Judge Business School at the university, and I'm a senior independent advisor to BNP Paribas Real Estate. Fantastic. And that's the professional work. And I hasn't even mentioned the work you do right. outside of that as well. Right. So, and just to sort of talk about maybe the, the, the connection between personal and professional and, and how important that is to you. Yeah. That's a, a great question, um, and I don't, I, I don't, I personally cannot separate those two things. So my purpose in my personal life and my professional life is kind of one of the same. And I'm, I'm very guided. For those that know me, probably are bored of me saying this. I'm very guided by the Japanese philosophy ikigai. Okay. And for those that don't know it, ikigai literally means a reason to be. Uh, and it's beautiful because it, it's the combination of four things. Firstly, it's it's what you love doing. What is your passion? It's something you get true joy and enjoyment out of. The second is 
what are you talented at? What can you be really good at? Now, I know that's slightly subjective, but you know, what do the, the others also consider you for you to have a talent in? The third is getting some sort of, sort of reward. And that's not just money, although that's part of it, but it's also recognition. And the fourth is what the world needs. And when those four things combine and you hit that sweet spot, you hit your ikigai. So I use um, my range of work with Specsavers, with the university, with BNP Paribas, and then I'm a trustee at two charities to in different ways to try and achieve my ikigai which is kind of maximizing my experience my skills to try and create positive impact in the world so the two uh, non i suppose paid roles that i do are trustee of a, an amazing charity called rama foundation which is based in cambridge which takes um uh, skills and expertise from the uk and does knowledge exchange with ngos and uh, charities particularly in india in the areas of health education and women empowerment. So we take people, in fact, in about two weeks, I'll be on a plane with five or six uh, medical volunteers from Adam Brooks Hospital in Cambridge, taking them for one of these um, sort of uh, charity visits, volunteering visits out to India with partners out there. And the second role I do as a trustee is um, with Bioregional, who are very well known, very well respected. They created the One Planet uh, Living Framework, which was used at London 2012, and then worked with a whole range of different organizations in the built environment and retail to try and, again, put sustainability strategy at the heart. So I suppose the reason why this range is really important to me is because I think it's, I, I like to think it's complementary. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, there's a, there's a danger when you're uh, working in uh, academia that um, it can become a bit theoretical uh, and it can, you, you're, you're forever advocating and guiding, but you're not actually doing. And that's where Specsavers is really critically important. It enables me to take the learning and apply it in a real business setting with some real challenges. And equally reverse, it allows me to take the lessons, the good and bad lessons that I've learned at Marks and Spencer Specsavers and BNP Paribas indeed, and then play it back into an academic setting where I can talk with some legitimacy, I hope, uh, about you know how easy or hard it is to implement and instill sustainability at the heart of business strategy. So, so talk a little bit about that, if you would, um, with with a particular view on on the current role in Specsavers um, and and where that fits into an organisation like Specsavers and and how you see uh, the challenges and the opportunities that come out of that. Yeah. Uh, firstly, you know, I feel very lucky uh, to work for Specsavers. It's a it's a business that's created um, and continues to succeed with a very, very special purpose at its heart, which is to change lives through better sight and hearing. That is a really great fundamental to start with, right? There are not many business who, businesses who can actually genuinely say that they are improving the quality of life outcomes for, in our case, 40 million people around the world every day or every time they you know, use one of our products. And of course, the products we sell, these, I'm very proud of these as Specsavers products, um, our hearing aids or contact lenses are very intimate for you, you know, for everyone who uses them as, as you do, you realize that without them, your quality of life is severely compromised. Um, so that's, that's a great starting point. Uh, and, and the other thing that I really love about Specsavers is that it's a true partnership business. So every, almost every part of Specsavers, every store you see on the high street, many parts of our supply chain are joint venture businesses with us. So we have a group entity, which is privately owned, yeah. uh, but we also work with thousands of small businesses in, in essence, all around the world, 11 countries. Uh, we have you know, nearly 3,000 partners, we call them, 
that are in joint venture with, with us. So we work in unison with them. We enable small businesses to thrive as well. Uh, and, and the third thing I, I love about it is that it's a private family-owned business, and that's very much at the heart of the way it operates. And so care, you know, families care for each other. We care for our, uh, our customers. We care for our partners. We care for the communities. But we do that all with a significant environmental impact. So, you know, these products uh, consume uh, a lot of plastic. Um, and we need to find a way now, which is very much the mission that I've got, um, to deliver that incredible social purpose by eliminating the environmental cost that comes with it. Uh, and we've committed to being net zero at, by 2050 at the very latest and are currently in the process of aligning our near-term targets with science and, and going through that process. Uh, we've uh, defined some very, very robust um, ambitions around what we want to do in communities, not just where we trade, where we have our shops, but also where we source from. How can we enhance and make those communities more resilient? Many of them which will face you know, the adverse effects of climate change first are facing the adverse effects of climate change and nature loss now. Um, and, and also, how do we harness 45,000 amazing colleagues in our partnerships, in, in the group functions, to really get behind this, to turn it into a verb, uh, which is my prior experience. Let me explore that a little bit more, because I think that's a really interesting uh, question around sustainability and where it fits and how it influences, particularly in terms of where it's seen within an organisation. I'm interested to know where, in, in the sort of corporate structure, sustainability fits in, in the sort of spec savers and, and how that maybe compares with other organisations that you've seen. It's a great question because I've been there now for a year in a sort of employed capacity. I did some consultancy before uh, with Specsavers. Um, and the, one of the first things we looked at was you know, where do we want to get to? What is, and what is the roadmap to it? And then what is the um, governance and capability that we need to get us there? And we decided uh, quite early on with other colleagues that um, given the sort of lack of maturity of this topic within Specsavers, we needed to create a team that was central because we needed to help each other and nurture each other and guide each other and coach each other. Uh, and then we needed to look at having done that, uh, we needed to look at what the gaps were. So we've just completed some recruitment of new colleagues who bring external experience to join colleagues who have amazing internal experience to create hopefully the perfect team now to lead us down our sustainability strategy. So we sit in a group function, yep. but we have um, regional leads who also have a responsibility to their regional functions as well. So I suppose we're kind of a hybrid. Uh, it's a very matrixed organization, so it makes it easy to work in that way in some respects. Um, but at the same time, we can benefit from helping each other, sharing best practices, understanding regional nuances, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Indeed. And that's one of the really interesting things about sustainability is that it does have things in so many different parts of a business. And it sort of leads me on to another question, um, which was around how to make the most impact and, and whether uh, you're, as, as a sort of person coming into, uh, looking to try and use their, their time and their expertise in, in a more sustainable, focused way, would that, is that best done within a sustainability-specific role? Is it best done in a, uh, a broader corporate role? How do you see that sort of mix of, yeah, of potential? I, um, I think it needs all, all of those to be behind this effort in order to make the kind of difference we need to. I do believe, though, there's a role for um, a sustainability function in an organisation 
because this is a very fast-moving, dynamic uh, subject area. And it needs people who've got the finger on their pulse on what is the next, so what is the current thinking on things like carbon or on social value or on, or on biodiversity gain, just as some examples. Uh, what, is the, um, what are the sort of solutions that are out there in the marketplace? Who do we need to work with in order to be able to create systemic change? And so you need those people that can bring some of those external insight and partnerships into an organization. Because what we've all realized, uh, and I learned a great deal at Marks and Spencer and at UK Green Building Council is, the power of partnerships is really important. So you need those people that can connect your organization to others that have similar challenges or certainly have solutions that can help you meet your challenges. Um, so, you know, the connectivity role of a sustainability professional is really, really important, not just in an organization and all its functions, but also outside an organization. And then you need, you need people that are very good cultural change agents. You know, so okay. you need those sort of um, people that can... Um, sometimes provoke the need for change in a business, sometimes can support change and, somewhat, and, and many times are accelerating change within a business. Um, but you also, need, you also need every function, every job in the business to embrace sustainability. Um, and you need you know, everyone from people on the front line in our shops to people in our supply chain and our manufacturing facilities to our partners to... Uh, the legal team, the marketing team, the finance team, the HR team, you know, I, I kind of at the moment are working through the whole business to bring sustainability at the heart of what they do as well. But not as an add-on, actually, but as completely embedded in their every thought process, every decision, every piece of governance that they do in their business. So do you think that, that your early career in that marketing function taught you a lot of those skills that you've then subsequently been able to use? Yeah, I think when sustainability... Um, you know, efforts are not as successful as they can be is when you don't learn the levers that are important for other stakeholders. Yeah. You don't learn how to express things in currency and language that they understand. Um, and so there is some benefit in having worked in other functions because you can understand that. Or certainly there is great benefit in appreciating what those functions do and having your local champions there so that they can teach you what those levers and languages are that you need to speak to. I, I, it reminds me of a story uh, in, you know, in my early days at Marks & Spencer when there was an amazing um, project that would have saved us a lot of carbon. It was a renewables project um, on, uh, based on installing solar panels, community-owned solar panels on stores. And I went to the main board a number of times and didn't succeed. Um, and the main reason for that was I was not learning to speak the language of, of the CFO. Who um, and, and, and as soon as I learned that, that I was presenting not just a great carbon opportunity, but a great commercial opportunity as well, the, the approval was, was yeah. gained. And so how do we know what those levers are, what the language is? Timing sometimes is really important as well. Being persistent with it is really important as well. All that comes by having a real appreciation of the different pressures and requirements of different parts of the business. And, and that in some ways connects with, with one of the other questions I wanted to ask, which is that people come into sustainability on the basis of passion and wanting to make an impact. But there's also an ambition to, to develop career and to be successful as well. Do you think the two are, can go hand in hand? How do you, how do you balance those, those two parts of, a, of, of your desire and, and your interests? Yeah. So you're absolutely right. I think uh, individuals that come into this space are quite mission-led, um, but we also obviously want to progress in our careers, etc. I think those two things are quite, uh, you know, quite complementary at the moment. I think we're seeing, and I'm sure you are yes. seeing, in the last three years that this role is becoming, this role and this function is becoming 
more and more critically important, not just to, to the, and valued indeed, and valued not only to the strategic part of a business, but often to the operational parts of the business. If you take business resilience, you look at supply chain resilience, you look at the kind of challenges that supply chains are facing at the moment around raw materials availability, affordability, extreme weather events, then actually the sustainability point of view is very important in that and in making your supply chain more resilient. So I think you can achieve both uh, at the moment. Now, in five years' time, will that still be the case? I hope so. But as it, this becomes more and more mainstream and more and more people are getting upskilled on it, I think the challenge for sustainability practitioners will be how do we keep innovating ourselves? How do we become, you know, technology is already playing a big role, will play an even bigger role. How can we become those technology connectors? How can we connect with a bigger system and make systems change? How can we find new revenue streams for the business that are uh, pivoting our propositions into a more sustainability-oriented sustainability proposition? All these things, and I, th I see the role of that. If you want to be a successful sustainability practitioner that can grow your career, I think those skills are going to become really important as well in a global, increasingly globalized world. Yes. And, and just picking up again on that, in terms of the future trends, the, the, where you see that going, have you, have you got sort of any insight that you can share in terms of what the next, next big things in, in the sustainability world are going to you be? You know, I wish I did. Um, <laughs> but I like the saying by a famous American author whose name escapes me at the moment, the future is already it's just not evenly distributed. So I, I think a lot of the things that we need, let's take energy efficiency as a small aspect of that. We're nowhere near exploiting the full potential from energy efficiency. Or let's, let's be broader than that, resource efficiency. We're still a very linear world, right? You know, 90% of what we use in an average year is, is linearly used and it's, it's not retained, its value is not retained at the value that we, we create in the initial uh, part of its, its use. Um, so there's huge opportunity in that. Now, I do think, though, there are a couple of nuances. I think technology is going to play an increasingly important role. Uh, whilst it, all of that needs some guardrails and needs some governance, I do think you know, that is coming, that is here, that's happening. And so how do we use things like blockchain to um, trace things through supply chains? How do we... Um, that's just one example. And there are many... You know, what is the future of robotics? Where will generative AI take us? Um, and there's a lot of fear about that, but there's also a lot of opportunity. It could free us to really focus on things, you know, from a, doing the administrative inefficient things to do, to spend our time on more high value creation. At the same time, it could make, if I take a real extreme case, as, as has been warned recently, it could make the human species extinct yes. or useless or not valuable anymore. So I think it needs some governance and guardrails around that. But robotics, generative AI, metaverse, blockchain are all very exciting things. And I think for future sustainability professionals, understanding how we can harness that, working with the right partners and solution providers to do that is really important. And I think that leads me on to the, the second attribute that I think is going to be really important for professional, uh, sustainability professionals going forward, yes. which is um, a term that um, is not mine, I, I'm nicking it from someone else, but is to become uh, solutionists. Okay. It's, it's actually Solly Townsend who's yes, invented that term, so I, I, I'm glad I remember that. Uh, <laughs> Solly will be grateful. Yes. Um, but becoming solutionists, you know, seeking not just not, and of course, the why is changing all the time. You know, we're seeing more and more evidence of uh, natural breakdown and extreme weather, etc. We need to be aware of that. But the how, when, what um, uh, is going to become more important. So seeking and finding those solutions, many of which are here now, and connecting them into businesses is going to become important. 
and, and to do that, are there any particular skills or attributes that you think people are going to need um, in that process? Or anything you would look back on your career and say, I wish I'd done more of this or that or, or thought more about something within that? Yeah, so I, I think being open-minded is probably uh, a really important um, attribute. Um, this is still a sector which is not very diverse, no. uh, doesn't have a mixture of voices in it. Um, and, you know, to, to make it more open-minded, we need to include more of those voices. You could argue that we're kind of in this precarious position we're in because we've not considered nature as a stakeholder. We've not considered other people outside our value chain as a stakeholder. And when we can move from being shareholder orientated to stakeholder orientated and then put nature on, the, on having a front seat in that, we would have different outcomes. So having a more diverse mindset and a more open mindset, yeah. getting those voices around the table will help us shape better solutions. I think that's, for me, probably the most, the key fundamental that's, that's needed. Fantastic. I think that's a good place to stop. Manish, Great. thank you. That's been Pleasure. fascinating. Thanks it's for the opportunity. And, and thank you, everybody, for, for watching and listening. I uh, hope you've enjoyed that conversation as much as I have and, and prompted some questions to go and think about yourself. So thank you all.